quick interval to let you know about a fantastic podcast series, The Case Files, presented by a former colleague of mine from my television news days. Award-winning journalist Kate Gerbo digs deep into compelling real-life stories behind some of the most astonishing cases in legal history and talks to those at the heart of them. From murder to medical negligence, each episode explores how people have been able to use the legal system to right wrongs and get justice. I've just listened to the episode about the 2017 Manchester Arena terror attack in which 22 victims died at an Ariana Grande concert and I was in tears listening to one of the mothers who lost her son, her grief, her bravery and her resilience. There's another episode about a surgeon who was jailed for carrying out unnecessary operations on women's breasts and just out is a case which, due to international loopholes, allowed killers to walk free after a British man was killed in Ayanapa. So while you are eagerly awaiting the next episode of the storyteller Violent Delights, go and have a listen to The Case Files and you won't be disappointed. Previously on the storyteller Violent Delights, a serving police officer helped dispose of vital evidence in the murder of Maxwell Garvey. Brian and myself took the mattress to Dancing Cairns Quarry in Aberdeen and burned it. And the jury here, Sheila Garvey, was in on the murder plot. Sheila said it had to be done. There was no other way. I'm Isla Traquair, and this is the storyteller, Violent Delights. A true story of love which began as a fairy tale, but ended in a nightmare. From castles to a courtroom, this story rocked Scotland like no other. It's a crime so historic, only a few characters are alive to tell the tale. And I'm tracking them down for what might be the last chance to discover the truth behind the headlines, and who killed Maxwell Garvey, and why. In the evidence file, there were thousands of photos. The family home that became a crime scene. A little boy's blue bike sitting outside the front door of the impressive house. The woodwork on the windows and doors painted a fashionable moss green. A fancy car parked nearby. Interiors of the home with stylish patterned carpets and curtains where Max entertained and encouraged the relationship between his wife and her younger lover. The air hangar a few miles away, where Max kept his plane. A smiling couple, sitting at a table. She with a glass of wine in front of her, and he with a pint. She wears a wedding ring. He's leaning into her. They look happy, and probably were at the time. The next photos of the pair are separate mugshots. The woman looks like another person. Her expression is so different normally used to smiling for the camera. This was a picture she didn't look comfortable posing for. It was taken on Saturday, August 17th, 1968. The day she first appeared in court charged with murder and the day her husband's decomposing body was found in a tunnel near a castle on the Scottish northeast coast. Shortly after the mugshot was taken and her fingerprints done, Sheila Garvey decided to break her silence and told her version of events. A version which she never faltered from throughout the trial. She was not involved in her husband's murder, but had helped conceal her lover's guilt. 
The bearded, dark-haired man, looking older than his 22 years, had stayed silent during the two weeks of the trial. Little evidence had been given to support his statement, a defence team tactic of allowing the Crown to prove his guilt. Meanwhile, 20-year-old Alan Peters, who wore the saddest expression of the three in his police photograph, looked his youthful age. Barely a man, and about to become a father, contemplating life imprisonment. As the trial drew to a close, Sheila endured one last round of cross-examination by Solicitor General Ewan Stewart QC. What emerged was new information that did not necessarily fit the image of a grieving wife who'd only stayed silent out of loyalty for her protective lover who'd shot her violent husband. Did you kiss your husband's murderer on the lips when he left? I have no recollection of that. Did you ever tell anyone that when your mother handed you over to the police, did you ever say, in my mind, there's no punishment that will ever fit her crime? I can't remember saying that. When were you writing a novel? You mean at Craig Inches? In prison, yes. Were you trying to teach yourself German? I was told that I was to be in solitary confinement until about the middle of November and I tried hard during those months to keep my mind together. Indeed. Did you contemplate writing your life story? Uh, one point I did and the governor said I had to stop. What I was writing was too sad. It was your life story? That was the way I had typed it. What was your life story to be called? Death, slave. Did you contemplate also writing a shorter work on your marriage? Yes, because I was terribly bitter with myself. What was the title of the shorter work to be? A title I thought was suitable. Why do you hesitate in answering? Do you not remember? Perhaps you'd better look at production 15. It may help your memory. Have you had time to think of the title? I can't remember. Wasn't the title Life with a Kinky Husband who came to a bloody end? I'm not quite sure. It was a way back at the beginning, in the, in the first days of my imprisonment. I was, I was feeling very bitter towards myself and everyone. The court heard Sheila could have received a large amount of money through Max's life insurance policies. However, with a missing status, she would have had to wait some years before seeing a penny. All I have seen of money in the past few years has brought nothing but destruction to my life. The 33-year-old mother had been in the witness stand over three days. Lionel Dykey's QC took one last moment to re-examine her before closing his case for her defence. You have now been given evidence in court for nine hours. Did you find it a bit of an ordeal? Yes, indeed. You have been subjected to two very skilled and very gruelling cross-examinations. Do you still, upon your oath, say you're innocent of taking any part in your husband's murder? I am. An exhausted and frail-looking Sheila returned to the dock and the bar was raised to let her take her seat. Although there were two co-accused, it felt to many like the lens was focused at only one. And in the closing speeches, Mr Stewart laboured heavily on the Crown's case against Sheila Garvey. He began by urging the jury not to make judgments based on the extremes of the Garvey's lives and Max's perversions. 
My learned friend ranged from Balmoral Castle to the beaches of Corsica with his evidence of beautiful brides and handsome husbands and brought in items designed to prejudice you in his client's favour. That evidence may have had an opposite effect, but you are not to proceed in this case on any prejudice or sympathy, and I am sure you will not. Maxwell Garvey may have been a sexually degenerate man. We know that up to the time of his death he enjoyed a good reputation locally, but we cannot shut our eyes to the evidence. He must have been, to some extent, a degenerate man. But if Maxwell Garvey was as bad a man as he is made out to be, it may be that some sympathy for Mrs Garvey will emerge from that. On the other hand, it is double-edged, because it may show to you that she would have had a very strong motive to seek her husband's destruction. Whatever lurid pictures may be painted in later speeches about these dreadful goings-on, you will, I hope, firmly bear in mind this was stopped in November 1967, and at the end of the month Maxwell Garvey decided he would break off completely from Trudy Burse. One is then back to what is almost the classical situation of the triangle. Husband, wife and lover. A very old story. An old story I would suggest that you should not be diverted from considering because of what had gone before. A love triangle indeed, but perhaps not the traditional kind. The evidence supported Brian as being the one who pulled the trigger. But what needed to be established and proved beyond reasonable doubt was who came up with the plan and assisted in the execution of it and the execution of a man asleep in his bed. Is Mrs Garvey the real brain behind this crime? She had everything to gain by successful completion. She would get rid of her husband, with whom, in her own words, life was hell. She would be free to entertain her lover while maintaining the standard of living to which she'd become accustomed. Mr Stewart was slightly sympathetic to Alan Peter's character, but he questioned Sheila's motivation for befriending him and his pregnant wife following the murder, and apparently being overly generous with her time and gifts, especially when the teenage bride had been poorly. After the murder, and up to the time of the rest, we find all three accused in a relationship, which as time goes on seems to get closer and closer. Peters, of course, confines in nobody about his part in the murder. He seems to have become a very worried man, as indeed he might. I do suggest to you that this is a normal picture of a person, and perhaps a fundamentally decent person, who's carrying a load of guilt. But what about Mrs Garvey? According to her evidence, her husband's murderer, Peters, was a man she'd never seen before the night of the murder. Even if you were to try and accept the continuing relationship between Mrs Garvey and Tevendale on the basis of her innocence, it would be almost impossible to do. What do you make of the way that Sheila Garvey moves in on the Peters menage after the murder? Like some sort of Lady Bountiful, she comes to Peter's caravan to tend to the sick, delivering the mail and replace the bedding. She went to the caravan more than once on what she described as an errand of mercy. Then on the wedding day of Peter's she goes with her provisions a £5 note for the bridegroom, an electric heater from both Tavendale and herself for the couple. When it came to Tavendale, Mr Stewart didn't have to work too hard in his arguments for his guilt, which he said was overwhelmingly obvious and his explanation palpably false. He goes to the house of the man whose wife he's been committing adultery with 
and whom he's been meeting secretly. From that house sometime later, he drags the husband's corpse, which has been shot by the deceased's own rifle. The jury was told Tevendale's choice of hiding place for the body demonstrated planning and premeditation. Tevendale knows a place from his childhood at St. Saris, where body could be concealed without any requirement of digging or displacing earth, a place where no spade or shovels are required. Mr Stewart's address to the jury, which began late afternoon, spilled into the following morning. He concluded his two-and-a-half-hour argument by circling back to Sheila Garvey. Would it be normal to stand by silently while he's murdered in bed? Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the proposition is ridiculous. Why no scream? She screamed loud enough when her arm was twisted. Why no action to save her husband? Why did she get obediently out of bed? The man she now says she pitied was killed in his own bed while she, according to her, stood either in the bathroom or the door of her children's room. She then helped the murderer to conceal evidence. Hawk-like Dr R Taylor QC was next to address the jury and took an hour in his attempt to persuade them that Alan Peters was an innocent man and Sheila Garvey had played the part of Lady Macbeth. Did Brian Tevendale tell Alan Peters beforehand what he intended to do that night? Only two people can really tell us, Peters and Tevendale. My client has given evidence that he was not told beforehand what was happening that night. Brian Tevendale hasn't given evidence to the contrary. He has given a statement to the police. That is all we know about the matter. The statement he gave to the police is just a load of rubbish. It would be too risky for Tevendale to shoot Garvey when there were children in the house who might come running out of their room. Tevendale had to have somebody to see that the children were asleep before he did the deed. And who could do that best? Sheila Garvey. There was no doubt who played the part of Lady Macbeth. I ask you, the jury, to accept that Alan Peters did not know there was to be a killing, that he did nothing to assist, that he did not interfere because he was afraid that if he did, he would get it, and that after the murder, he assisted with the disposal of the body because he had been implicated and was afraid of the consequences. Ladies and gentlemen, would you like to interfere with Brian Tevendale with a loaded gun? Alan Peters is a person of impeccable honesty, but weak-willed and easily influenced. He is not a person like the others he had become involved with. He is a fly drawn into a spider's web. With that thought hanging in the air, it was quickly overpowered by the force of nature defending Sheila Garvey. Lionel Dykey's QC was about to stretch his flamboyant orator wings to take centre stage in the courtroom for his dramatic closing speech. The case against her will disappear like the mists of a summer morning. His opening line did not disappoint. One thing must be paramount in your minds. One thing has been felt like a presence in this court from the day of the commencement of this trial, that wherever the guilt lies, whoever is responsible, a young, vigorous and brilliant man lies dead at the hand of somebody. A man lies dead. All that you can see today 
is label number 14, produced by the Crown, a brown hat box. The brown hat box containing Maxwell Garvey's skull, which had been a key piece of evidence for the Crown, was now being used as a dramatic prop for the defence. The jury must not let their natural sympathy with a tragic occurrence and their natural indignation that a man, whatever his faults and whatever his virtues, should have been done to death in a brutal and cowardly way, cloud their judgment or rouse their prejudice. The defence and the Crown were at least in agreement that the scandalous aspects of Maxwell's life should not influence their decision. Murder is murder. He went on to divide the case into different chapters, the first being the marriage and its fairy tale beginning and subsequent demise. Then a cloud no bigger than a man's hand had appeared in the horizon, and that cloud, over the years, grew into such a storm that the damage, which was ultimately precipitated, caught up with Maxwell Garvey, his wife and two others, who stood in the dock charged with murder. Maxwell Garvey, himself driven by some curious fate or compulsion, started forcing his wife to join him in a course of conduct which led along a road which ended in tragedy and his own death. But Maxwell Garvey, in pushing Sheila into Brian Tevendale's arms, forgot one thing. To have a lover was one thing. To have one who is in love with you and you with him was one which could raise a force of passion which no Maxwell Garvey could control. He was creating not only a permissive society in his own way, not only a foursome group which he thought was in the best traditions of a modern enlightened society, he was creating a Frankenstein monster which eventually rose up and slew him. Brian and Sheila falling in love was almost like Elida Chatterley with a tragic ending having regard to the difference in ages and the social background of the two people. But there it was, and there they were. He pointed out it had been easy for Max to end things with Trudy Burse in November 1967 because he felt no emotions for her. Maxwell Garvey had cut out that relationship as easy as a mini-skirted girl can remove her false eyelashes. However, it hadn't been as easy for Sheila to end things with Brian, and it hurt her not to see him between March and May 14th, except for three fleeting run-ins. He argued that if she had been the instigator for Max's murder, she'd have taken greater interest in the details. Does this not make it perfectly apparent to any intelligent person that at the time of the murder, in pursuance of a plot which necessitated the effective disposal of the body, the principal participant in that plot did not know where and how that body was to be disposed of. She thought that it was going to be thrown into the sea, and this was part of her anxiety. If she had done a Lady Macbeth act and let in the murderers to destroy her husband 
so he would never be seen again, then surely it follows that she would have satisfied herself that the place of concealment of the body was a place which was very secure and there would be no danger of the sea giving up its dead secret. She was lying beside her four-year-old son, reading him to sleep in the knowledge that she was either directly or through the aid of conspirators to murder the father of that child before dawn rose the following morning. A more monstrous proposition, I doubt, was ever seriously made in a criminal case in a court of law. The court heard there were only six steps between the children's bedroom and the room in which their father was killed. Lionel Dykey's attempt to inspire sympathy was a risky one, depending on who they believed. Next, he moved on to Trudy Burse in an attempt to discredit her. He focused on the fact she'd allowed the lovers to spend around three nights a week at her home in Aberdeen after the murder. The Crown said, look at this woman who, if she did not participate in the murder of her husband, at least knew he had been killed and night after night she had lain in bed with a man whose hands were red with blood. The Crown does not say, look at Trudy Burse, who night after night prepared the sheets for the murderer of her lover and the lover of the murderer of her lover. Although the Crown admitted it was unlikely that the primary motivation for the murder was financial, Mr Dykes claimed Sheila would have been left worse off. According to the Crown, this highly intelligent woman conceives a plan which will result in the disappearance of her husband. Apart altogether from the evidence, such a plan, far from ridding her of the intolerable difficulties under which she was labouring, would have rendered these difficulties even more intolerable. Because what would be the end product of such a plan if successful? Supposing Tevendale had never cracked, supposing that the body still lay rotting at the hole at Lauriston, what would be the outcome? What would have been achieved? She would neither be wife nor widow. She would not have inherited a penny from her husband's estate because her husband was not yet proven dead. When turning his attention to the indiscretions of Mr Burse, an active police officer until shortly after the body of Max was found, Mr Dykes questioned why he and his wife weren't in the dock. Look at Constable Burse. Whilst his constable's oath was still in force, Knowing at that time that his brother-in-law was involved in murder and perhaps Mrs Garvey was a party to the removal by his wife and brother-in-law of the only real evidence in the case existing at West Cairn Beg, namely the blood-stained mattress and suit. To my mind, the most extraordinary feature of this case is not only the absurd theory of the Crown, but the incredible acts of Constable Alfred Burse and his wife. The wife who said she had deep emotional feeling for the man whose very name brings tears to her eyes. The man she knows she will never see again. They were going out of their way to cover up. Very well, protect your brother. But why protect your brother's mistress if you think your brother's mistress had something to do with the murder? Trudy, at that time, was protecting her brother but why the murderess of her former lover? 
Is not the answer very obvious? At that time, Trudy had no reason to believe that Mrs Garvey had anything to do with it. He suggested the change in Trudy's demeanour from forthright and shocking when asked about the affair to tearful and almost silent when asked about Sheila's involvement demonstrated an unreliability as a witness. But the woman could tell you, without turning a hair, the incredible sexual relationships she had. Who could tell you, without a trace of emotion, bold as brass, and tell the whole story. When pressed on this aspect of the evidence, she broke down and there were agonising minutes before we could get anything out of turbulent Trudy at all. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, Trudy Burse's evidence on this aspect of the case against Sheila Garvey, that she'd let them in, is utterly unreliable. There are witnesses, and this is the evidence on which the Crown invite you to hold beyond reasonable doubt that Sheila Garvey murdered her husband. Ladies and gentlemen, you wouldn't drown a kitten on such evidence. As he drew to a close, he leant on the elephant in the room, the infamy of Sheila Garvey. There has been a great deal of salacious and titillating material which has necessarily come out during this trial. A very large number of people, not only in this court, but outside, are lapping it up. Doubtless people in clubs and gatherings will be having a little giggle to themselves. The jokes will be passing around and the limericks have already started. Salacious tittle-tattle will follow this woman around for the rest of her life. We cannot judge any woman's feelings when she finds herself in this situation. It is not for us to giggle and laugh at some salacious aspect which the evidence has disclosed. It is part of us all. One of the greatest English poets wrote, No man is an island entire of itself. Each is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. Each man's death diminishes me, for I am involved with mankind. Therefore, send not to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. And for all of us, I do not seek your pity. I ask you only for a verdict in accordance with justice. I do not ask you. I demand you return a verdict of not guilty. There was utter silence in court as he returned to the semicircular table, his performance over and an impossible one to follow on from, especially for the defence team of Brian Tevendale. Advocate Kenneth Cameron read his crowd well and addressed the jury quietly and for only 15 minutes. Submitting the case against his client had not been proved and the burden of proof lay with the Crown. Had there been friction and jealousy between Brian and Max? Yes. But malice or ill will? He suggested no. There was one final speech to be made. Lord Thompson's charge to the jury, but because he anticipated running beyond 5pm were he to start, he decided to delay until after the weekend. 
a decision that some believe changed the fate for at least one of the accused, as the words of the four lawmen faded into the weekend. In the next episode of the storyteller Violent Delights, Judge Lord Thompson addresses the jury. There has been a picture painted here of a quartet who had a pattern of sexual relationships and activity you might regard as nauseating. And the three accused finally learn their fate. I waited, trembling. I knew what the jury foreman would say next. This is the storyteller Violent Delights, written, produced and edited by me, Isla Traquair. There's more information and photos relating to the case on social media. If you've enjoyed this, then please go to iTunes and rate and review. It really helps other people find out about this story. This is an entirely independent production and any support is gratefully received. A huge thank you to Nick J. Tyler who composed and performed all the music except the title track, which is Searchlight by Cathedral. And finally, a huge thank you to all the voice actors who've given their time, in particular Kate Dickey, who is the voice of Sheila. <laughs>